At first glance, it seems strange that the attitude of the anti-Semite can be equated with that of the negrophobe. It was my philosophy teacher from the Antilles who reminded me one day, when you hear someone insulting the Jews, pay attention. He's talking about you. And I believed at the time he was universally right, meaning that I was responsible in my body and my soul for the fate reserved for my brother. Since then, I have understood that what he meant was, quite simply, the anti-Semite is inevitably a negrophobe. They prefer both groups simply embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Go! Go save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 254 of Embrace the Void, where it is about to get very Jewy. I am your host, Aaron David Rabinowitz, and my guest this week is David Bernstein, a longtime professional advocate for center-left progressive issues and a founder of the Jewish, the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and author of the new book, Woke Antisemitism. In the book, he argues that wokeness poses a threat to Jews because it promotes in a liberal society and the view that Jews are white oppressors. David, would you like to say hi to the void? It's great to be on with you. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it too. You know, this is something that I'm very interested in discussing because I've often seen accusations of anti-Semitism leveled at the woke lots of different ways. And as someone who identifies as a woke a uh, person of Jewish heritage um, and someone who spends a lot of time working on anti-Semitic conspiracism as a real problem out there right now, I think it's very important to distress, you know, just sort of discuss this topic uh, head on. I think you and I probably are going to disagree quite a bit, but in proper Jewish tradition, at least we will do it while interrupting each other. So that will be nice. It'll be a nice break from the very civil discourse that we are forced to engage in with our Gentile brethren. So to get us started, you know, you uh, say in the book that you've been watching this movement for three decades, you're a longtime center-left progressive. Can you say a bit about your background and like what brought you to write this book? Sure. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, to in an uh, immigrant family. My mom is from Iraq. My grandmother, who's from Iraq, lived with us. I grew up speaking a Jewish dialect of Arabic in the house. I I was influenced by my father's civil liberty proclivities and, you know, was very pro-ACLU. And that's sort of my was my early ideological orientation. I would have regarded myself, if I knew the language then, as both a political liberal and a classical liberal. And I thought that in those days, those two things generally went hand in hand. So I supported abortion rights and church state separation and immigration and the like. But I also f supported free speech, not just as a matter of law, but as a matter of culture. And I believed that people should be able to question ideas and that free expression of ideas was central to a liberal society. I started 
feeling that there was a problem maybe in college when um, when I took a woman's studies class and the te- the professor made it impossible to challenge her. And I and I started to hear this elsewhere that people started insisting on the truth of their political views in ways that I hadn't really heard before. It it, it felt like a kind of epistemic closure. Mm-hmm. I didn't call it that then either, but that's what it. I felt like when I was entering progressive circles as someone who generally agreed with the policy prescriptions. And I, and I started to note that there were people around me, and very often they weren't from the States. Sometimes they were from Europe, Jewish students, activists from Europe and so forth, who had a very decided theory as to why the world was the way it was. As an American Jew growing up in the United States, I always felt that like this ver- the version of liberalism here didn't really have a theory as to why there was disparity in the world. It was sort of, there are haves and there are have-nots. And I'm not concerned really about why there are have-nots and has. I might have theories. I might debate about them. But my primary concern is to making sure that we alleviate some of those disparities the best we can. And so I was always on lookout for policies that I thought would do that. And so progressives who might have held a very particular view about why there's disparity and I might have found common cause previously. But as the ideological atmosphere became more and more charged and as that theory started to gain ground within left wing circles, that is the theory that the haves caused the conditions of the have nots, I, I found it harder and harder to be in alliance with people. And that got more and more pronounced, you know, let's say in the mid uh, like 2015, 2016, with the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, people were really insisting that they had the truth and that we should all sort of toe the party line. 2018, I remember feeling that with some controversies that emerged. And then, of course, George Floyd moment and the racial reckoning when I felt like this environment had really become a dominant discourse, not in society at large, but rather within progressive circles and within institutions. And so I felt like people were shutting down the conversation. I think that's very dangerous to shut down the conversation. You know, I know sometimes, Aaron, you, you call this a moral panic, and I've, I've seen it before, but I actually think that that's wrong. And I, you know, I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be able to talk about this because For sure. I think that this, that, that we must be able to talk about the most important issues our society faces. And I don't demi- dismiss the idea that you know structure causes disparity at all. I think it's it's true in many instances. But I think that the insistence that that's the only acceptable set of explanations tries to crowd out all other explanations for disparity. That's very dangerous, and it, it's pervasive in progressive discourse today. Okay, great. Yeah, there's definitely plenty to work with there. And <laughs> I do think it is a, a moral panic, and I do always try to emphasize that I think moral panics are often built up around genuine concerns or or take the form of genuine concerns. And in this case, I think there's a genuine concern that has been raised by several folks around the issue of an over-reliance on deference politics, this kind of having to defer to, you know, like very like a very strong kind of standpoint epistemology where you literally yes. can't argue with certain individuals about certain things. I do think that I've seen some of that in the world. I don't think that it's a good thing. I and mean, I think that it's received pretty substantial pushback. The question to me is, to what extent is that a widespread and serious problem? Or to what extent is it a kind of more isolated problem in certain elite communities that is being negatively experienced by other elites um, in a way that gives them the impression that it is a widespread problem? 
when it isn't. Um, and I think figuring out which one it is, is kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of your arguments and, and mm -hmm. other arguments on this front. Um, so let's let's do that. Let's dive right in because there's definitely a lot to cover here. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully you feel like I've accurately described the thesis of the book. It sounds like we're mostly on the same page about what you're you're arguing, though we'll, we'll unpack some of the specific sure. claims. And I, I like you do start the book by both defining some terms and pre-budding some concerns, which I find particularly uh, valuable, even though I don't obviously agree necessarily that you've successfully pre-budded some of the concerns, but let's work through these a little bit. Let's start with wokeness. Mm -hmm. I, um, as a self-identifying woke person, am fine with the category of wokeness. I know some people think that it is a unusable category alongside things like cancel culture, um, but I think it is a useful category, even though it is sometimes misused. Um, can you give like a quick explanation of what you mean by wokeness? Sure. So, uh, you know, ideologies need names and, you know, there's no perfect name and they all raise hackles. So I just decided to stick with 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 woke ideology. Um, but I could call it critical social justice ideology. It's just that no one knows what I'm talking about when I do it. I, I mean, two things. Um, one is that um, that bias and oppression are embedded in systems. It's the view that bias and oppression and oppression are embedded in the very systems and structures of society and not just a matter of personal attitude. And two, and it comes paired with this, and as you described it sort of as, as a deference or standpoint epistemology, it's the idea that only those with lived experience have the standing to articulate that for the rest of society. Um, now, a lot of people would say, well, I don't believe that. And I consider myself sort of progressive, um, you know, but they behave in that way. In other words, they, 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 they try to, uh, they, they, they accuse people like me of acting out of privilege when we question the ideological claims made by the woke left. And they'll say, you have no standing to say that. Oh, how dare you say that? Or they engage in a kind of pervasive snark that makes conversation very, very difficult. So um, mm -hmm. that that's my that's my uh, that, that's my feelings that it's um, and now you said before is it does it is this just sort of a problem that exists in elite circles? Well, look, I mean, elite circles can be very important. I mean, I I, I think we should. Oh, sure, yeah. I know, wasn't downplaying the, the importance academy, of elite circles. Right. right. Yeah, I, the I academy is important. No, no. Social service right. agencies are important. The medical establishment is important. The legal establishment is important. These are places where these ideologies, uh, the arts, by the way, are important. So these are places Absolutely. where this ideology plays out. And, and um, I want to have as wide of a conversation as possible in the institutions where knowledge is produced. And I think that's the, the issue here is I feel like uh, this is where knowledge is produced. The other thing I would add to it is that um, that identitarianism on the left tends to uh, spark identitarianism on the right. It's not I don't mean to say that the Could right be, is um, not morally. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to mention you use identitarianism, which is a term that was coined by Richard Spencer, an anti-Semite. Can we just use identity politics instead? Sure. I, just, I, I didn't no. know that, by the way. I, I did oh, not yeah, know that's okay. that. Um, so identity politics uh, on the left can spark identity politics on the right and vice versa. And um, and so when I hear it on the right, obviously, I, I'm more scared of the right than I am the left. I mean, I think that the right has guns. Um, the, the right um, can be extremely vicious. Um, you saw that with anybody, including people on the right who questioned Donald Trump, like Ben Shapiro, I think, was the most targeted Jew on Twitter by far. And I know others who were targeted by alt-right extremists. So, um, so I'm I'm worried about the right, and I'm and but I think it's a natural outgrowth of 
right wing populism when when you have the left sort of pushing their own view of identitarian politics, it's going to provoke that kind of backlash. And I don't want to see that continue. Mm. I should say, I, I want to clarify, it was actually, I think, originally coined by French uh, extreme uh, racists, but was popularized in America by Richard Spencer, who strongly okay. self-identifies in that way. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to bring it up partly because I wanted to make sure that you weren't, I don't think you would want, it would actually be fair to equate someone like Richard Spencer and his identitarian politics with something like what you're criticizing, which is not a call for like a, an ethno state or anything like that. Certainly. No, no. In fact, okay. I'm worried about it. That, I, I'm worried that, that it's going to empower the Richard Spencers out there. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that for sure. Um, one of the couple other things to clarify here on this definition. Um, I'm, I'm fine with this. Uh, I want to make sure before we you know press on, because I'm going to use another term, which is anti-woke, um, that you're o okay with it also acknowledging that there is a community of sorts or communities, let's say, centered around an ideology that we can call anti-wokeness that involves a rejection of the things you were just describing that promotes a, a sort of a very strong take on free speech we you know i would call it a kind of free speech absolutism you might feel like that's too strong a term but um but essentially being for maximal free speech while also it seems leading to the banning of speech they find to be immoral um right. would so, you, so yeah. i mm -hmm. would question that not because i think that there are very important sources of cleavage in this sort of anti-woke crowd. Um, you know, I'm not where Chris Rufo is. Um, and I sure. am not where a lot of other sort of uh, right wing folks are on these issues. We might agree on certain things um, about the problem, but not agree on any of the solutions or almost all the solutions. You know, I'm not for state level bans of what teachers right. can say or teach in the classroom. For sure, um, there's a, there's a spectrum of anti wokeness, just like there's a spectrum right. of wokeness. Yeah, and, and whether that you call that ideology, it's only an, to me an ideology becomes an ideology when it tries to shut down alternative views. In other words, that's what wokeness is only an ideology. It's it's you're, if you assert that there are that there are biases in systems, and then you debate that with me, and we we might agree or disagree. To me, you're not engaging in a kind of ideological discourse. You're just engaging in a an exchange of ideas. It's only becomes an ideology when you start to sort of insist on your own uh, righteousness and prevent other people from engaging in a serious way. To me, that's when it becomes an ideology. It becomes so like that, the cuckoo bird. It tries to kick out other birds from the, uh, ne the nest. And so that's that seems like a bit of a problem, right? So like, I think it's fair to say that there are moderate and extreme versions of both wokeness and anti-wokeness. And if if your if your claim is that wokeness as a term should only be applied to the extreme version of wokeness, that's going to cause just confusion and debate. It seems like, or, you know, like it's going to make debate impossible because it's going to mean you're you're essentially saying by definition wokeness is this particularly extreme bad thing rather than a complicated social movement that can turn into this bad thing. Do you know what I'm saying? See, I, I might even, it's a critical distinction in my mind because I might even agree with, some, look, I use critical tools myself in my analysis of the world. I know that there are structural realities and I do, I'm not claiming when somebody uses a structural level of analysis that they're engaging in some kind of ideological endeavor. I don't think that that's true. I just think it's a it's a mode of analysis. Let me give you an example. You say that you 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 claim that it might be, it's a moral panic to 
worry too much about this. But I'll use the idea of lived experience, which emerges from this discourse. When you're somebody who has views that are at variance with the pieties on the far left, and you feel it acutely in every institution you're in, and you feel like you're, you're, you're shutting yourself down, and you can't engage in good conversation, it sure doesn't feel like a, a moral panic to you. So I'm, okay. I'm suggesting. I'm not, I'm not denying your lived experience, right? I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. But I'm, I'm saying I'm, that I'm yeah, using uh, a category that comes from wokeness of lived experience in an analysis. So I, I think to me, it sure. only becomes problematic in an ideology when it insists on its own truth and shuts down everybody else's view. Okay. So that's fine. I think I still feel like it's valuable to talk about anti-wokeness as an ideology in, insofar as we've seen in our society that that ideology can and has led to the shutting down of other people's viewpoints through, you know, people like Chris Rufo. Um, so I, I will question that you are not a member of the uh, anti-woke community, um, but we can we can talk okay. about that as we get into some examples here from the, from the book. One other thing that I want to just put a, a pin on, I'm for... I'm okay with people including, for example, Kendi and D'Angelo under wokeness, even though they have very different philosophies and very different mm -hmm. conclusions about how to approach the world, right? Yeah. Um, I do have a problem, I think, with including, as you seem to do, folks like the black Israelites as woke. And oh, I don't, that... I don't think that they're woke. I don't think. Oh, you don't. Woke. Okay. You were no, I, I was using woke. that example. I thought, I think that the, that the, um, Southern Poverty Law Center is woke, but not, not not the not the black Hebrews. Okay, so you would acknowledge that there can be like black nationalists, hoteps, folks like that who are not in fact woke. I don't consider them woke at all. Okay, no. great. I just wanted to make sure. I just wanted to clarify that. Great. Um, one other thing. Uh, let's see. Related to these kinds of issues. You know, you talk about white privilege in this area and in other areas as well. And you also talk about Jewish privilege. And you seem to say that you believe that white privilege is really a thing, but that Jewish privilege is not. Is that correct? Um, not exactly. The way I would yeah. say it is that that obviously if you're brought up in a a white privileged environment. In other words, if you brought were brought up with all kinds of advantages in your life, you you should acknowledge that you enjoy certain advantages that other people may not. And um, mm -hmm. but I think that's a very complicated phenomenon. I think certain white people really enjoy almost no privilege. They've they've been they've drawn they've grown up in a miserable environment, and their whiteness buys them exactly nothing. Um, and sure. there are certain black people who have grown up in a very privileged environment. Um, and I think it's just it's it's a reification of a very complex phenomena of when one has advantage and when does when one doesn't. And when we start to turn it into a like an, a fixed set of categories that we link one's identity to one's privilege in society and we treat that as a binary. So I'm white. So therefore, I gain a couple advantage points and I'm a male and I gain a couple other advantage points. I just don't think that that's how the world actually works. Although, okay. again, it can be the case that one has certain advantages in certain contexts fixed to those identity categories. Like, obviously, right. if I'm a Jewish, if I'm, if I'm, a, um, you know, uh, if you were a Jewish a person living in a Jewish ethno state, for example, that prioritized Jewish people, you'd have Jewish privilege. I'd have I'd have a level of privilege in in certain contexts, right? Right. Okay. Um, and if so I'm a, I, let me ask also let me ask if I am a passing white individual of Jewish heritage living in a white supremacist society, for example, I could have some measure of white privilege as well, correct? 
Yeah, I think so. Like, I think if we were living in the Jim Crow era in particular and you were living in the South and you were able to get your sandwich at the restaurant and the black person who tried to do the same wasn't, you'd be enjoying a kind of privilege, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, so I'm not dismissing the idea that w- that uh, societies can assign privileges in, to people. That's that's clearly the case. I'm saying it's not so fixed, particularly now, and, um, and that in, in fixing it in the way that it has, it, it creates all kinds of problems. Um, and I think the, that it's very easy to go from the concept of white privilege, insisting it's true and it's always true, to ideas of Jewish privilege or Asian privilege. And I think that that really gets us in really problematic territory. But you wouldn't want to call for like the censoring of discussions of privilege just because some people might misuse that language in these kinds of ways, right? No, I want to debate it. I want okay. to. I want to be able to talk about it in an open. You want to way talk about like privilege more, here. not less. Yeah, yeah. Let's okay. talk about it more. Let's talk about it when it is. I think I'd learn a lot okay. from from that discussion. That does confuse me a little bit because it did seem like in the book you seem to be arguing that all of this discussion of privilege merely by making this part of the discourse puts Jews at risk because they will be accused of having privilege and therefore will be. You know, and I wasn't sure what the conclusion was from It's not the discussion point. of privilege, Aaron. It oh, is the insistence of this as an ideology and the reaction to anybody who doesn't toe the party line. To me, I, I, we can talk about privilege without it getting into that territory. But when it becomes dogmatic, when it's when people say, well, if you don't agree with me about white privilege, then you're a racist. That's when it becomes to me an ideology. It becomes problematic and it leads to all kinds of uh, diff- you know, the, okay. the risk of anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry. Okay. Yeah. And I want to talk about your argument around dogmatism um, because I find it interesting that it wouldn't also apply to all religions, for example. Um, but let's, I want to talk about your other definition first, uh, which is anti-Semitism. Um, now here, this was, seems a little more problematic, I would say, because you don't, you, you sort of refuse to give a definition, right? You say, you say instead that like, you know, there's a debate between anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism, and you recognize that they one can feed into the other, and there can be potential differences. But you're not really interested in hashing out the differences between them, which seems like a problem to me as someone who's Jewish and critical of Israel, because I think some of the examples you give in the book, where you're saying this is anti-Semitic, it appears to me to just be critical of Israel. Um, so it seems like it is important to make that distinction if you're going to then use the argument that these people are being anti-Semitic in a harmful way. Yeah, I do. I do. What I'm what I'm saying is that this ideology where you have a fixed sense of who the oppressor and the oppressed are can both lead to sort of anti-Semitic tropes and can also lead to anti-Israelism. And I don't I, there, you know, look, you could spend a whole book arguing about what what constitutes anti-Semitism and when anti-Israelism becomes anti-Semitism. I have ideas about that and thoughts about that. I can explore those ideas and thoughts, but I'm writing in a way for somebody who's um, who's concerned that this is happening around them and they can sort that out in another conversation. There's only so much you can accomplish in a book. What so I'm not claiming though, that yeah. anti-Israel, anti-Israelism, I'm not saying that every time we see more anti-Israelism or we see more criticism of Israel, that we're, we're automatically facing an anti-Semitic phenomenon that's born out of hostility toward the Jewish people. I don't argue that. And I don't think that. 
Okay. So you point out that you're concerned about this oppressor oppression thing, right? I, I, and I'm I'm wondering what you'd say to people who'd be concerned that your argument here has been used ex- explicitly, I would say, by people, uh, particularly or in particular by people who you quote in the book favorably to essentially shut down criticism of Israel by claiming that it's anti-Semitic and that you know, essentially what you're doing is setting up a permission structure for censorship here. Yeah, there, it has been. I mean, there's no question that there are Jews who try to silence criticism of Israel by calling it anti-Semitism. Now, most mainstream Jewish organizations, which I've been a part of, are very careful to not use the A word promiscuously. Um, you, if you look at like the Anti-Defamation League, they'll, they, they may talk about anti-Semitism, but they only apply it in the most egregious circumstances. The American Jewish Committee, where I worked for 13 years, I would argue does the same. What you find is that there are a lot of individuals, some of whom have large Twitter followings or email lists or what have you, who uh, do not engage in that kind of discerning discussion and instead call any criticism of Israel, anti-Semitism, and that, I think, poisons the well, and it's very illiberal. And, and, you know, your central argument in the book seems to be individuals who engage in behavior that leads to a more censorious society are not people that we should be allying ourselves with in our social justice work. Is that correct? Yeah, it's sort of, I don't want to pay the pound of flesh to be part of a criminal justice reform initiative that says the only way you can join forces with me is if you agree with me that America is a pervasively white supremacist country. So I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to pay that price of admission. Now, it doesn't mean I... And so I, if that's the, the price of admission, and I think increasingly it's been the price of admission, then, then I think the Jewish community needs to find allies who don't extract that price. Um, okay. who uh, that, that's that's the argument so is that is that sort of i mean i'm not sure that was in an agreement with what i'm saying as in, with an example or yes i think it probably was yes okay great all right um I, I wanted to make sure because it seems to me that you yourself are allying with individuals who engage in what what strikes me as censorious behavior of this sort and they get quoted in, in the book so i just wanted to make sure i was understanding that for when we get to the central argument here Right. The question is not whether I ever talk to somebody who engages in censorious behavior or I even agree with them. The question is, in allying with them, am I required to agree with them? That's the question. Like, if I, I'll, it's I was not, not that very I'm clear not, in the text. I'm sorry. I, I like. I felt like you were you were more blanketly saying that the woke are not reliable actors because they will make things censorious. It doesn't seem like you sort of hedged in any way yeah. on that particular point. Maybe that could be made more clear, um, but okay. my, my but I'm I'm making a strate- this is I, I sort of go into strategy mode, and I'm saying yeah. okay as a strategic matter, who should the Jewish community be engaging? And I'm not talking about in, individuals. I'm talking about where do we pick our partners in the future, and, and and so I'm saying that to me the best partners are people who are not bound by ideology on either the far right or the far left, but people who we can work to support a liberal society with. Okay. All right. Um, before we dive into that, I want to hit one more of the things that you pre-butt, um, which, because I think it is a big, important point. Um, you say, you know, one pushback you expect to get is that anti-Semitism is a bigger problem on the right than on the left. 
Um, and if it's all right, I'd like to quote directly here because I think it's actually a particularly illuminating quote. Um, you say, the threats on the right are indeed serious, but I don't live on the right. I live on the left. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Georgia Republican who promotes white genocide theory, among other conspiracies, has no influence on Jewish community, but diversity guru Robin DiAngelo is steadily gaining ground. Um, now, I have a couple of concerns there. My first one is, isn't this kind of portraying, this feels like it's portraying Jewish people as a monolith to me, right? By sort of denying the existence of a, a fairly significant number of conservative Jews who might break hollow with MJ, uh, you know, MJG if, you know, if it, you know, and they would probably ignore the Jewish space laser stuff and talk about economics or something like that, right? There's sure. 60% of Orthodox Jews identify as conservatism. So is it fair to say really that like conservatism and American right-wing politics has no influence on Jewish communities? No, of course it does. I, what I'm, I, what I'm really doing is there are people on my left flank saying that I should be only concerned about the right. The right is much more dangerous. And in a sense, I'm conceding the point to them. I'm saying, yes, the right is dangerous, but that doesn't mean we don't have work to do on the left and that that work isn't very important and might actually, if we did it well, might actually make the right a little less dangerous. Um, and so I'm, I'm saying, like, I think I used the example of the, the, you know, even if the water main break across town, meaning the right wing fanaticism that we see is more is more serious than the gaping pothole on my street. I still have a gaping pothole on my street that needs to be fixed and I want to fix it. And um, and so it's it's responding to a criticism of the left. There are right wing voices in the Jewish community. There are illiberal voices in the Jewish community. And um, and sometimes they even have institutional power. So I'm not claiming that that's not a problem. It's just not the problem that I'm dealing with right now. I've spent a lot of my career dealing with what happens on the right. But I think that somebody needs to police the left as well. And it should be somebody from the left or should be people okay. from the left. I just want to make sure because it did seem like you were saying that they have no power there, which didn't seem the case. No. I also am a little concerned because it seems like a switch in terminology, right? This book is called Woke Antisemitism, not Left Antisemitism, right? Mm -hmm. So plausibly, it seems like the counterpoint would be, why aren't you addressing antisemitism in the anti-woke community, which I still would argue that you are, you know, a part of, you are um, collaborating, you are funding uh, groups that I would argue have promoted and continue to promote individuals who promote antisemitism. And it seems to me that like, this is a substantial problem in the anti-woke community that you draw heavily on in your book. Um, why not? It seems to me, uh, you know, and again, I will say, I understand, you know, um, it is not that these kind of focus uh, objections can sometimes be used in inappropriate ways. It's fine to have whatever focus you want, but your argument there was, I'm not in X community, I'm in Y community, and I have more influence in Y community. It seems to me that the community you're likely to have the most influence in is going to be the anti-woke community that you seem to be connected to. And that if you'd wrote, written, a book, written a book, you know, anti-woke, anti-Semitism, that could have a really significant impact on the way that that community is mainstreaming various kinds of conspiracism that you actually point to in the book. Um, I, I guess maybe I'm curious, I will. why not write that? No. Okay, you will. Okay. No, I, mean, I didn't say I will. I I'd said, love maybe to I'll, see it. Look, look, look I, I posted about my book on several anti-CRT, anti-woke Facebook sites. Uh, some of them are more nuanced places than others, which is why I don't love the whole anti-woke 
community idea because I don't think that they're all the same. Um, but in almost every single instance, there was one or more anti-Semite who came up and said, you Jews invented wokeness, so stop whining. I mean, clearly that's very brazen anti-Semitism there. And, and it exists in these spaces without a doubt. And, you know, I've, I've taken pains to write articles. I wrote an article about disagreeing with the, uh, with what was happening in Florida around uh, CRT in schools and wrote it with two other people who are also quote unquote anti-woke. So we, we are, you know, it's not that I'm um, don't want to police my own camp. I will. But, you know, you have to understand from my own perspective, I came of age on these issues with other people who are part of like a liberal humanist agenda. People like Helen Pluckrose, a counterweight. Um, you know, these were not these were people who saw themselves as leftists and didn't want to see the left become illiberal. And so that was the fight we were fighting. It just so happens that um, that that the right wing seized upon these issues, turned it into a wedge issue and is okay, using yeah. it in, in politics in a way that that I'm often uncomfortable with, often disagree with. So you can oh, say, well, yeah. you're still part of the same vibe. And I'll say, you can say that, but I don't perceive myself that at all. Yeah, it's ironic that you bring that up. I don't know if you're familiar with the work I've done on on counterweight and, you know, Helen and James and these folks. Um, it, it seems to me, right, so, so your central argument is woke ideology is not inherently anti-Semitic. You say that explicitly in the book. Yeah. Um, but you argue that it increases the risk of anti-Semitism by promoting a liberalism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. What you're describing there, the group of people you're describing, appear to me to be a reactionary group that believe that there is a major problem, but in responding to it have promoted a censorious approach to it and have promoted substantial anti-Semitic conspiracism. So Helen Pluckrose's partner in the book that you cite as your first citation in that book is James Lindsay, right? You know who James Lindsay is, I'm sure. Of course. These are not the same people anymore. They were James Lindsay. But you're quoting today, them in your current book. You're quoting an, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist in your uh, own all, book I, about anti-Semitic conspiracy. I don't think James Lindsay is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. A, a promoter of anti-Semitic conspiracy. Would you, would you deny that James Lindsay has promoted great replacement conspiracism and great depletion or great, um, yeah. you know, anti-globalist anti-Semitism alongside James Michael Lindsay has written a lot of things. I'm not sure that he's completely coherent in, in his, in, in discussing these issues. He's also wrote an article about anti-Semitism of a very long and thoughtful article about anti-Semitism on the left. Um, he said a lot of different things. I, I'm not trying to defend James Lindsay. I'm just saying that he and Helen Pluckrose are not on the same page anymore. Except for um, his and, texts are still up on Counterweight's website. And I, okay. as I wrote in an article, as I wrote an article for I Skeptic. I don't believe wait, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold yeah, on. Sure. As, as I wrote right. an article for Skeptic, right, for the, uh, in the UK, right, when he went very full, you know, out in the open anti-Semitic conspiracism, Counterweight didn't condemn him. They just quietly removed him from their board, which he was on. And when I asked for comment on it, they didn't, they wouldn't admit that it was because of the anti-Semitic stuff. I'm just pointing out, it does seem like you're, you're talking about individuals who seem very happy to collaborate with individuals who promote anti-Semitism and that it's part of this ideology of anti-wokeness that it is important to platform individuals, even when they do promote this kind of stuff, it seems like. Right. 
So I, I don't I look, Aaron, we I don't think we could do this on the fly, but if after this podcast you wanted to sort of go into where, what James Lindsay has said and whether it constitutes anti-Semitism, I'd be happy to do that another time. My understanding of James and what he's written is not that he's an anti-Semite. I don't believe he is, and I don't believe he's promoting those theories, although he <laughs> might promote theories that might have bad offshoots. I'm, I'm not, you know, and I'd have to look at it more carefully than I have at this point. But certainly Helen Pluckrose does not belong in that category. And um, and Helen is a very thoughtful liberal humanist. And um, you can, if you want to say that anybody who's ever adjacent to anybody else is therefore tainted, you can do that. But I don't think that's a very that's, good that's argument. That's not what I'm saying, David, though. You know that I'm saying that like, there's a difference between, oh, I found out that this person has become, starting to promote anti-Semitic conspiracies. Let me openly condemn that and no longer work with them versus quietly, quietly back away from them while still using them as a resource and collaborating with them in other ways. Right. Right. They, they Those are different agree, things. They are different things, but they would not agree with you that he's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. They would agree with you that he is saying things that are problematic and that they don't want to represent the cause anymore. So there's a difference in how they would assess him versus how you're assessing him or I would assess him. So Yeah, and I, um, I just think that that's part of a tribal mentality, an in-group mentality to defend an individual for saying the exact same things that you cite in your book are, you know, the Great Replacement Conspiracy by Tucker Carlson kind of stuff. Like, there's no daylight between James Lindsay's work and Tucker Carlson's work, but you're acting like they're different and you're using one as an example of something that we absolutely shouldn't allow in our communities in your book and saying the other one is fine. Like the other yeah. one is something I, I would have. I'd have to go into d more depth with you about what James Lindsay has and hasn't said before. Okay. I can. I just want I, I have I, other not, examples. Not, I just wanted, I, that was one right. since you brought up Helen Pluckrose in particular. Right. But um, let me just say, like, the anti woke to the degree that it is a unified thing um, is susceptible to any ideological groupthink or dogma as any other camp is and has to watch out for it. There are people in, who might sort of uh, come under. The uh, the anti-woke movement who might be pushing ideas that I think are really problematic and we should push back against them. And where it's sort of a new cause. And I think people are still trying to figure out uh, what the uh, what the definition of is uh -huh. and where they fit in. So there might be a little of that. But, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, we have to self-police like everybody else should self-police. OK, I would say it's not a new cause. I would say it's the newest incarnation of a decades old cause. But. That's um, another probably lengthy conversation, but let's sure. let's look at some other examples. I think we've we've run that one to ground quite a bit. There, I actually, want to hit hit you more generally on a on a premise of your argument, which that you seem to sort of take for granted that liberals do better, that Jews do better in liberal societies, right? Yes. Um, and I think that's intuitively plausible, especially as someone who was personally raised in a progressive liberal, you know. Um, household. I do have a concern, though, that I think just like Jews can be harmed by an overly censorious society, I think there's a case that Jews can be harmed by an overly liberal society, i.e. one that isn't able to effectively shut down anti-Semitic conspiracism, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I also am a little skeptical of this idea that like allowing the Nazis to march, for example, is in some way actually going to help or protect Jewish individuals. It seems to me that we've allowed the Nazis to march and we still got QAnon, we still got Trump, we still got January 6th. Um, so it seems to me that like Jews themselves should be in favor of some amount of 
censorship or content moderation if there's good evidence that it will do a better job preventing the spread of conspiracism than the alternative? What yeah, would you say? I, I think I don't agree with that um, because I think that um, that kind of censorship leads to more extreme forms of censorship. It tends to imbue certain people with uh, authority and that authority then abuses its uh, power very easily and quickly. And you end up in a more censorious environment that actually hurts you more than helps you. Look, I mean, we don't live in a perfect society. There's no society on earth that has found the, uh, that has found the ability to both be liberal and uh, adequately police itself without state power. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. I'm not saying that we've, we've created a, a free speech utopia here, far from it. And there are real dilemmas, especially in, you know, as social media takes its place in society and, um, you know, where, where you're dealing with a completely unregulated juggernaut. Um, so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with all the ill effects of that? Um, but, uh, you know, and, and there are complicated cases there are edge cases that I that I think I, I struggle with and I think about a lot. But, uh, you know, it's sort of where in the end do you think American society should end up? I think it should end up with a very strong liberal ethos that errs on the side of permissiveness when it comes to discourse. And um, because I think those societies are more likely to be protective of all minority groups and Jews in particular than this than it's than this opposite. I think okay. the First Amendment has served us very well in this country, and I think a culture around the First Amendment has served us well as well. Okay, so it does seem to me that this means I, I bring this up because I feel like often there's this suggestion that like one side wants to limit speech more extremely than the other one does, where I feel like we're often just all on the middle of the spectrum somewhere and debating, you know, practice, edge cases, things like that. I agree there is in some places the kind of deference politics that you're criticizing, um, but I want to separate that out from what I think is a meaningful debate between these communities about is it really better to allow someone like Milo Yiannopoulos or, you know, Richard Spencer to go speak at a college or would it be better to prevent that? Um, right. So let me... Yeah. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to accept for the sake of argument, though, that like, let's 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 buy this idea for a second and see where it goes. Right. So on I think it's on page 2202 for folks who want to follow along at home. Uh, right. You know, you say that any ideology that can lead to Jewish hatred is ruled out as a reliable ally. You've said that you want to maybe soften that a little bit. But I'm actually I'm just curious to apply this to some things and see what you think. So it seems to me, for example, that claims about Jews having biologically higher IQs and ex using this as an explanation for why we're overrepresented in a variety of you know places in society is a long-standing premise in anti-Semitic conspiracism, has promoted lots of harm. Um, do you think that people who promote Jewish IQ theories like that are questionable allies under this theory? Yeah, I, look, they're not. That's not who we're. The context here matters. When I'm talking about who our allies are, who the Jewish community are, I'm, I'm dealing with a very specific set of circumstances, which is that the Jewish community has been engaged in um, in an alliance with the progressive left, and that that's because. And I have, by the way, I have uh, both because I agreed with many of the the policy solutions and because. Um, because I wanted to influence it. And I'm saying 
that that may not be working because it's becoming an increasingly illiberal movement and where the price of admission is too high. So we have to look at other allies. I'm not talking about every individual or every idea that's emerged. There may be progressive ideas that I think are perfectly legitimate. Now, if somebody starts to argue that Jews are have higher IQs on average. Look, what the only you know, it's not something I'm remotely interested in, and I don't think that we should be focusing a lot on that because it it really doesn't matter. Do I think that that's an inherently problematic or illiberal perspective? It depends on the person who's doing it and what they're trying to do by doing it. Are they trying to, um, you know, if 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 in unlocking the human genome we find out that Ashkenazic Jews have some kind of trait that makes them smarter? Okay, like what am I going to do? I mean, um, you know, I, I don't, I have no interest in doing that or doing that research or engaging those conversations. I'm just saying I don't think it's inherently in a liberal discourse. It only can be if it's used by the wrong people in the wrong way. Okay, I, I was just trying to play out what seemed to be your principle, which is don't ally yourself with people who promote ideologies that can lead to Jewish hatred which seems to be broader than just don't promote a liberal ideologies because that would just be sort of a collapse into a very basic anti-woke position and not like a specific anti-Semitic anti-woke position, it seems like, right? Yeah, that might be a fair nuance that I should go back to and take a look at and see how I express myself in that particular context. It may be that I'm using a shorthand that doesn't advance the point that I'm really trying to make there. Okay. Well, let's let's focus in on your concern here about the increasing liberalism. Uh, you know, something you've brought up repeatedly here is your your concern that the woke indoctrinate people into an oppressor oppressed ideology, and that can lead yes. to harm. And and you know, in conspiracism literature, one of the key features of a conspiracy theory is that there is this you know, group of mysterious oppressors or something like that, or, or a key feature, you could argue if it's necessary for all of them. But certainly there's evidence that that kind of rhetoric can lead to dehumanizing, mistreatment, things like that. Um, first, though, let me start with a joke and then something slightly more serious. <laughs> if the problem is oppressed oppressor ideologies, can we both as Jews for a second agree that Judaism would be a huge problem? That like, there is no more oppressed ideology than Judaism, right? As a family, we used to have a prayer that we would do at the beginning of meals, which was all Jewish prayers combined together, right? They tried to kill mm -hmm. us. We survived. Let's eat. Right, right. Yeah. So why, look, yeah, why is oppressor ideology not bad for Jews? Okay. So the, obviously there are oppressors in this world and there are oppressed people. Like that goes without saying. The question is when it becomes an ideology, when you start to apply that to everything and okay. you and you assume that it has a complete monopoly of explanatory power. So if you say that um, all the problems we have are because oppressors are oppressing the oppressed, then it becomes an ideology and you don't and you make it impossible to have conversations about what else might be happening there. So I, I worry that um, when my kids school system is teaching kids to recognize and resist systems of oppression, which is the exact language that they're using in an anti-racist audit, that they're installing a kind of software into kids' brains that says, um, this is the way the world works. And we're going to show you in very definitive ways who the oppressed and oppressors are. And I think that becomes highly illiberal. So it's not that there aren't actually oppressed people and oppressors. There are. 
But um, but I, that conversation, but the, the conversation has to remain open and not ideological. And when it becomes okay. ideological, then it becomes a source of, of of bigotry and dogmatism. Okay, so I would have to argue then. It seems to be that your book is anti-Semitic by that definition because. It seems to me that you're promoting a victim narrative in the book specifically for anti-woke individuals, and you're very specifically calling out their oppressors. So, for example, you quote Kara Dansky as saying, I would love to have a conversation with The New York Times, with The Washington Post, with MSNBC, CNN. I would love to do that. They are not seemingly willing to even give a conversation about this. And so I go on conservative media because conservative media will have me. And you seem to accept this as an an accurate justification for these individuals' behavior. My first problem there is like 10-ish pages earlier, you cite multiple individuals of the anti-woke persuasion who have columns or have had columns at the New York Times. So it does not seem at all even factually true that the New York Times is giving no space to these anti-woke positions. How do you yeah. square that as a non-ideological claim? Yeah, well, look, there's a difference between the newsroom and the and the editorial departments of a newspaper. Editorial departments often make specific efforts to uh, allow certain voices. So Brett Stevens writes for the New York Times. By the way, they ran Jim James Bennett off, off the, the Times uh, because he allowed Tommy Cotton to write a piece there. So it's not like the, you a, don't see those a voices really, there. really, really, really bad piece that argued for essentially, if I remember correctly, maybe it's okay to violently overthrow the government, I think, or something like that. No, was that no, the I article? think it was that it's was okay to you. It's okay for okay to, uh, the United States to use the National Guard or something like that in in, in dealing with shutting violent down protesters. protesters. Yes, right, right. Using right. yeah, using state force right. against protesters. Right. Right. But but you know, the question is what the newsroom allows to be covered and and not whether and um and again, I'm not saying that it's it's the case every time. Like the New York Times has, um, uh, I think James Powell is at the uh, who writes articles about about wokeness. But there are other there are other uh, many other instances where they're simply not going to cover a voice like that. Um, so I'm I'm not. What, what's your uh, evidence for that, though? I mean, so you, you give the specific example of Kara Dansky. Do you know much about Kara Dansky? I, I know a little bit about her. I've looked about. This is a problem, uh, though, right? Like this happens a lot for me. I'm like, you are saying this person is getting censored. Do you know anything about this person? And the anti woke response is, ah, well, a little bit. Uh, look, I, I understand that she's a gender critical feminist. Okay, that that I understand. Um, okay. I understand that um, that some of the people within the gender critical feminist camp have gone to extreme lengths and sometimes can be demeaning. And by the way, I've even written an article calling one of them out not too long ago, um, okay. saying that I Which thought one? that I th um, she wrote an article in Tablet Magazine. Um, is it? Uh, I, 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 I'm just blanking Jennifer on her name. Jennifer Billick. Yeah, I think it was Jennifer Billick. Okay, yeah. that's and great. And I, I called out her. Yeah. I called out her use of the term synthetic identities, which I thought was unnecessarily demeaning. And that, um, and that, and that, um, you know, we can talk about trans issues without engaging in demeaning discourse. It's. I love that you bring up Jennifer Billick because I've also written an article about Jennifer Billick and how she has mainstreamed anti-Semitic conspiracism into the gender critical community yeah. by, by, by specifically citing a Nazi who talks about Jewish transhumanism. I also I, I, I note, listened to that. I listened to his very. I, I I didn't even know what to make about of it, and I only listened to that one YouTube video that he put out, which was quite something. Yeah, I just want to note. 
she's been shared around by vast amounts of that community. And Kara Dansky yesterday <laughs> posted that everybody should subscribe to Jennifer Billick's Substack, saying, quote, specifically, quote, Billick has done some of the best work on the gender industry, which is specifically a reference to her accusations of Jewish billionaires right. astroturfing. Yeah, like it, like that's what that's what Jennifer. No, what she's talking is. about is not just Jewish billionaires. She's talking about the Pritzker family and and a very specific uh -huh. Jewish billionaire, which is still Look, a conspiracy theory. It's absolutely a conspiracy theory. You agree with that part at least, right? It depends. I'd have to look at it. I'd have to look at it. Not necessarily. Like, look, I know you've written about this. I haven't delved into all your writing, but I know you've delved into this. Just because there are wealthy Jews who support certain causes doesn't make it a conspiracy theory. Absolutely. It's a conspiracy Absolutely. Theory. I make it very specific. What does make it a conspiracy theory? Right? right. I lay it out in a lot of detail about why it, this is specifically a dangerous blood libel style conspiracy theory uh, of the kind that, again, you criticize in your book. I, I, I'm I'm sorry that I get a little frustrated here. This is uh, the second um, interview I've done on a book that's kind of like this. And it's the second time that I've had someone downplay to me anti-Semitism because it is coming from or, 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 you know, conflicts with their perspective to some extent, while sort of saying they don't really fully know what it, what I'm actually in referencing or something, or they don't have all the details or something like that. But your book is specifically about this. And I feel my, like there should be a higher how, expectation. My, my book is about how illiberal ideologies can produce anti-Semitism. So what right. I do, what, what Gender I, critical is an illiberal ideology producing anti-Semitism. And you're complaining that one of them I, is being prevented it's from. It's not always. Like, I think when you're, you're lumping in, and sometimes individual writers can on one hand be giving a legitimate critique and then then go off the reservation. So that that happens sometimes, and it's hard to know what to do with that. But um, but you know what I what I'm what I'm saying is that that being critical of the current gender discourse is not in itself make you part of that whole camp. I think that's actually a liberal. That's not what I'm saying either, though, right? But you're also you would you say, that say you're not you did say wait. that gender critical is a conspiracy theory. And no, I'm no. I, I said that gender critical communities are mainstreaming anti-Semitic conspiracism. That's a very different claim. I, I, I want to be concerned. I was responding here to a different keep... comment. I okay. was responding okay. to a different comment. So, so to be very, very clear here, I think that they are mainstreaming anti-Semitic conspiracism in the form of attacking people like George Soros. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion to be had about the way that billionaires who aren't Jewish are still coded as Jewish and treated as Jewish in a way that promotes Jewish anti-Semitism. Um, my, my, my major problem here, though, is, you know, I am, I am against overly censorious culture, but I am also very skeptical that the critiques of that culture have found any way to prevent themselves from opening the door to all this kind of conspiracism under the grounds that it's fair play or part of these communities or part of these views or shouldn't be silenced or something like that. And that seems at least as, if not more dangerous to Jewish people than anything else. And I'm not even hearing like, I don't feel like there's substantial concern about this. I feel like it's, it's getting downplayed. I feel like it's getting, you know, oh, I don't really know much about that or that's not really my focus or something like that. But it seems like it should be, you know, here's, here's what I'll say, right? If the premise of if the argument of your book is not just an attack specifically on your political enemies, but a broader argument about how to prevent the spread of harm to Jewish people, then it seems fair to apply your principles 
to your own community and see what the outcomes are. And they don't seem very good. And it doesn't seem like you address that in the book at all and instead reference these people as if they are victims, which they're not. Kara Dansky is yeah. not a victim. I, I I don't claim that uh, that Karadansky. Well, if she's not being, if she's not allowed to make gender critical arguments because she's because of the arguments and not because of anything else. I mean, I don't think you hear a lot of those voices. Period. In other words, Jesse Single is also um, uh, also often deplatformed as well and treated like he's engaging in an illegitimate critique. So it's. So and I've had Jesse Single on this show and argued with him about his trans views, and I've also told him that I think he's promoting a moral panic. And I know, yeah, I, I don't think it. he's given a good to reaction it. to it. You know, I think like I think those are accurate critiques of him. I agree that it's it's annoying that people you know treat him as the main character of Twitter too often, but that's not the same as saying that all of their critiques of him are wrong. You know, nor do I think the fact that he gets heavily criticized is the same as an overly censorious culture that's dangerous to Jews. I don't think you're really showing here that there is an overly censorious culture that's dangerous to Jews. Yeah, well, you have to, then we'd have to get into some of the particulars around that. Look, I'm very careful in general, and there are, um, to only call somebody an anti-Semite if they are expressing very extreme sentiment, right? So I'm, I'm very careful. I, what I try to do is I talk about the phenomena but not the individuals. There are some examples where I think they engage in extreme sentiment, right? When, when, but I, but I try not to apply. Um, I try not to cite specific people who are anti-Semites and specific events, even. And sometimes I say, look, this is the risk that you're undertaking here. This uh -huh. is a phenomenon that's coming out. Look, let, let me, let me, let me make an analogy to the whole George Soros thing, right? And the billionaire conspiracy theories. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that there are there are right wingers who are using George Soros as a dog whistle for anti-Semitism. No question that that happens. I also believe that there are people who are legitimately critiquing George Soros because he gives away a lot of money to prosecutors uh, um, on criminal justice reform and that that's fair game. Now, it's hard to sort that out sometimes. And Correct. so I'm, I totally so, agree. Right. And there are people whose attempt, intent I don't know when they're citing George Soros. So I, I choose not to call them anti-Semites unless I unless there's a lot of other things that they've done and said that make me think that they're doing this as a dog whistle. OK, um, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what this is a pushback to. I haven't called people anti-Semitic. I've said they promote or launder anti-Semitic conspiracism. And this is a frustration of mine. When I criticized James Lindsay for this, everybody was like, James isn't anti-Semitic. And I said, I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I think he's promoting anti-Semitic conspiracism fed to him by folks like Michael O'Fallon. And no one seemed to be willing to accept or uh, address that argument once that distinction is made. So I do feel like I, when I try to address these problems in the anti-woke community, I face a censorious wall where people, you know, mischaracterize my arguments. And, I, I yeah, just don't not, know. You know. I, I don't. I, the, here's the thing. I'd have to look. I, I sort of don't pay attention to James Lindsay that much anymore. He's off Twitter, too. So I, I don't know what he is saying about the Great Replacement. I've seen he said things on the Great Reset, Reset for example, that I thought were absurd. Um 
And mm-hmm. I'd have to look at those comments more carefully and see how they relate to the long, the larger great replacement theory ideology for me to make a judgment on that. That's that's all I'm arguing about that. And, and um, I guess what I would say is, in my experience, lots of people end up in this place of I have to look more into something that I would argue that they should have looked into already. Okay. And that the, re- the reason for not looking into it is, is one of tribal allegiance, right? There's a kind of selective blindness to not learning about certain things that will make it harder for you to do the things that you're doing, right? And that's my impression of what is often happening in these discussions, which I find, you know, frustrating because like if someone criticizes someone who's woke, I will go and, you know, like if I don't already know who they are, I will go and look them up and do the research. And I generally am not going to try to just work with people. I, I've, I've made a mistake or two in the past. And I think I've specifically pointed those out and apologized uh, for not doing better on those. But I do think that, like, there's a difference between that and what feels to me a persistent I haven't learned about this enough. It's a kind of appeal to self-ignorance as a way to avoid addressing the issue. Right. So in general, I've tried um, and I can't say I've succeeded in every instance. No one can to to do that. So, for example, that tablet magazine article about I'm blanking on her name again. Remind me the woman who called Jennifer Billick, Jennifer Billick. Um, I actually went down the rabbit hole of every single accusation of anti-Semitism made against her Um, and wanted to see whether she was an anti-Semite. I listened to the entirety of that video from that. Um, th- that guy who, again, I don't know that much about, but I've, I, I, all I had to do is hear that one video to know that, uh, that, he, that, that he's crazy. I think that she's, um, shown a tolerance for, vid- for, for views like that, that is troubling. And I said that in the article I wrote about it, that, which was, by the way, I'm sure there were people within my own sort of, uh, quote unquote, anti-woke community who took umbrage with me for writing that. I know one of them told me, um, that. So, I, okay. so I am well. I'm willing to do that. Doesn't mean I've done it in every instance, but of you know, I, I realize that you know, any any group of people can go off the ideological cliff in any direction. And and I would argue that like long before he was promoting anti-Semitic conspiracism, James Lindsay was promoting the exact sort of censoriousness that you're against, supposedly, right? Like he he wrote an article with Peter Bogosian that got published in the Wall Street Journal, speaking of, you know, accessibility, right? Where they essentially say there's no point in debating the woke, that they are not worth arguing with. Um, he has actively called, he was, you know, before he was doing anti-Semitic conspiracism openly, he was calling for the banning of critical race theory in schools. He was calling, you know, for the uh, jailing of people who advocated for these kinds of ideas, like... And again, he's still a widely cited member in this movement. So I think that's a major problem, it seems to me, for your argument, at least. Um, but let's, let, me, let me bring up one other thing because we're short on time sure. here. And I do want to, I have to torture you um, in other ways as well <laughs> here in a second. But Please like do. you mentioned at the beginning, right, you said, you know, your real concern here is dogma. And you have a quote on page 68 that I'd like to, to share. Sure. Um, you say, like all religions, woke ideology embodies a dogma that rebukes all challenges. I agree, but it's odd to hear... You know, it's odd to hear that, right, from someone who's Jew. I assume you're a practicing Jewish individual. Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a liberal Jew. I'm not a. I, I believe that aspects of the Jewish tradition are dogmatic, and um, and I don't um, I don't abide by them. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you're yeah, saying here that all religions, though, it seems like you, it seems to be the, the the claim there is all religions are fundamentally irrational and therefore tend towards dogmatism as a protection for their irrationality. Is it 
follow then that like all religions are anti-Semitic on your view? No, no, look, the question is to what degree, what are they trying to do with their, with their dogma? Is it, is it a kind of internal discourse and part of their spiritual tradition or are they using that as a way of, of silencing other people? I mean, uh, so if, if, if somebody says, well, I believe that the Torah was given to Jews at Mount Sinai and they believe every aspect of it is true, but all they do with it is go to synagogue every Saturday and, you know, and keep kosher, you know, it, it's it's sort of a private faith position. It's not a fundamental, it hasn't been turned into a big grand political philosophy. So it still may be a dogma, but it's not a dogma that's been weaponized in any real sense. Obviously, there you are versions of though, Judaism. Dogma, you say explicitly, though, that dogma begets more extreme dogma. You yeah. seem to be implying yeah, and, and there's, there are, no, there's no qualifier there for like sometimes, you know? Okay, Fair enough. I'll, I'll accept that that nuance, but I'm I'm speaking of a very particular kind of uh, dogma. Um, there, by the way, clearly, if you believe that the Torah has been given at Mount Sinai, there are radical Jews who, in both the United States and Israel, who take that then as permission to do things that I think are politically and morally outrageous. Um, and so I would absolutely critique them, and I would critique the underlying dogma that they're citing as a justification for those actions. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess ultimately my sort of experience of this is I am sympathetic to your critique of deference politics where it does arise. It does seem to me that there hasn't been a strong case made here that there's a significant unique problem for that in the Jewish community or that there is a significant unique anti-Semitism problem for wokeness as an ideology. It seems like your like the premises have all had to be softened to the point where you would have to instead say sometimes wokeness can potentially lead to anti-Semitism, just like many other ideologies, including ones that I personally identify with, and that it would be um, it would be wrong to condemn wokeness just on those grounds. Instead, we should critique specific instances of wokeness that seem to go too far. Yeah, look, I think woke ideology has become a dominant discourse. And as a result of its dominance in certain institutions, it's more likely to do harm to the Jewish community than some other ideologies that enjoy their their day in the sun. Um, so I'm, I'm I think it is a real and present danger because I think it's become so dominant, and it also lowers our capacity to fight it because it's one that is quite prevalent in the Jewish world itself. If it, it, when people talk about anti-Semitism on the extreme right, on the alt-right, they talk about the underlying ideology that produces it, the great replacement theory and the like that produces it. When we talk about anti-Semitism in the Muslim world, we talk about Islamism in Muslim Brotherhood ideology that creates uh, the anti-Semitism that we're seeing in the, the view of the Jew as an infidel. When we talk about anti-Semitism on the left, it's often talked about as if it has no ideological antecedents. And I'm saying that that's that's that that we're talking about it and thinking about it in a different way than we are these other forms of anti-Semitism. We should be alert to that, and we should we should try to push back against that when it becomes too fixed and too too prevalent in our community. Um, you know, I know mm -hmm. that the the nature of the conversation in the Jewish world has changed. I know it's very difficult to talk about certain issues. It's very difficult to talk about um, gender identity issues. Um, 
and yet it's obviously a predominant discourse in many Jewish organizations. It's very hard to talk about that. Um, and when things become very hard to talk about, and when we have fixed notions of who has power and who doesn't have power, that's going to generate anti-Semitism. Now, as, as you've said, and I've said, it's not the only form. It might not even be the most dangerous form, but, but because it's become such a monopolistic ideology in so many institutions, to me, it's very worth pointing out. And, um, and it should not prevent other people from writing about other forms of anti-Semitism that may even be more physical, dangerous to Jews. Okay. I agree with parts of that. And I, I want to give you the last word. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, though. I think it would be nice if you can hang around. We could talk a little bit for the patrons, maybe a little bit more about the history of sure. anti-Semitism on the left, because I actually think that's a really interesting historical mm -hmm. topic and worth exploring more. Um, let's, though, one thing I like to ask before I get to the torturing, are there any particular resources that you would like to recommend for folks who might want to better understand where you're coming from on these issues? Um, there is a good article by Pamela Pereski, who is actually our chair of our board, but I think she wrote, I think she wrote the article before she was chair called um, uh, Critical Race Theory in the Hyper White Jew. That was in Superior Journal. I think that's a really excellent um, article about this phenomenon. Um, you know, I think that there are other people who are who are looking at these issues. It's hard to write about them if you're an academic. So I've talked to very prominent academics who study anti-Semitism who are very wary of, of writing about it in the way that I have. Um, and I'm willing to because I'm not, I'm not in those circles. I don't do those jobs. Um, um, you know, I think Brett Stevens has written some interesting things also in Superior Journal. I think Superior Journal in general is an excellent resource for people who are looking to, um, to understand what's going on here. Um, you know, anti-Semitism on the American left. I mean, Deborah Lipstadt has written about it in her book. Barry Weiss has written about it in, in her book. I think these are those are both important texts to to uh, look at, um, you know, and um, and I do believe, um, you know, that, that there's a general recognition, even among, by the way, progressive activists, that anti-Semitism on the left is real. I've talked to people who are who probably disagree with me about everything I'm saying here and still believe that the anti-Semitism on the progressive left is real. I have a, I have a little story about this. I mean, anti-Semitism um, is real everywhere. I don't I'm, think I'm not, anti-Semitism is yeah. real on the left. I, I, um, I, I, was, I, I was sitting with a guy who uh, worked for an organization called Jewish Voices for Peace, which is an organization that opposes Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state which many Jews regard as inherently an anti-Semitic idea. And he's telling me he was leaving the organization. And I asked him, why are you leaving? And he, I, he says, because of anti-Semitism. And I said, you mean because you believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state and their denial of that is anti-Semitic? He goes, oh, no, no, I don't believe that at all. He goes, it's because a lot of the people I'm working with are just tried and true anti-Semites. So, you know, it was interesting that, um, that Eve, you know, clearly in his view, anti-Semitism exists on the left. It's just not anti-Zionism. Um, yeah, that's so my view it, too. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so let, let's leave it there for now. Uh, and I will have to, unfortunately, now torture you. So okay. this Go for it. is the enlightening round to Trolley Problem Boogaloo edition. 
why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. <sighs> so, for folks who are not familiar, I'm gonna give you a list of scenarios. These are classic trolley problem style scenarios. You have a trolley, you have a lever, you decide where the trolley goes. And I want you to tell me what you should do in each situation. Should you pull the lever or not? Okay? And you can assume, unless I say otherwise, that everyone involved are innocent strangers. Okay? Okay. All right. So, first, the very basic one, right? Should you pull the lever and save five by killing one? Yes. Okay. Um, should you then save five by pulling the lever, causing a machine to shove a person onto the tracks? Yes. Okay. Um, next, should you save yourself by killing one? No. Okay. Should you save yourself by letting another person die? So instead of having to turn it on to them and kill them, you simply do yeah. nothing? Yes. You should. Okay. Yes. Um, should you pull the lever and save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? No. Okay. What if the artist is there begging for you to save them or save the art by killing them? Yes. Okay. Uh, what about should you save a significant body of scientific research by killing the scientist? That's a hard one because I'd, I'd have to, to know what the potential of that scientific research is. If it were, if you said that would save a lot of lives, then I would, um, as opposed to figuring out. Yeah, um, not, you know, sorry, buddy. That's too much. It's in lightning rounds. Right. So I, I guess I'll say no. Okay. That's fine. Um, say, all right. Save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human. No. Interesting. Now, what if it turned out that you were, in fact, the sentient AI? Should you kill a human to save yourself? If they were trying to kill me? Depends. That's the nuance. <laughs> it depends if they were trying to kill me or not. not. Not trying to kill you, just on the opposite track. Yeah. Yeah. Um... No. Okay. What if, uh, what w should you let them die for you to survive or are you morally obligated to sacrifice yourself in that situation? Um, I'm not morally obligated to sacrifice myself. Okay. Uh, next, what about saving a random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Yeah. Again, that would be a, that's depends, but no, in general. 
Okay. You have survived your trolley situations. How do you feel? <laughs> yeah. You know, these are good questions um, that we have to struggle they're, with. They're and, really not, but I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're questions that become more and more. They're good questions to, to struggle with first principles. Um, but, um, but then of course, as you make things more nuanced, they become harder to answer. But there are certain things like, like that. I think I, I believe like, um, should I, um, if, if I'm in a, there's actually a Jewish text on this. If I'm in a desert, uh, if I'm in the desert and there's enough water for just one person to survive and with one other person and I have the bottle of water first. Should I drink it? And the answer is yes. And according to Jewish law is that you mm-hmm. are actually obligated to drink it. So the other person dies. And if I shared it, we'd both die. Mm. But because I found it Consequentialism first. there. Yeah, there's a kind of consequentialism there because I found it first means that I, I have to drink it. I'm obligated to save myself. If he found it first, I would not be allowed to try to extract it from him and drink it myself to save my own life. Interesting you bring that up because um, I did want to talk a little bit more about consequentialism and the VIP. So let's let's save that for a second. Um, but David, do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff one more time? Um, they can find my stuff on JILV.org, which is the organization Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. My book is at JILV.org backslash book. So if you're interested in reading the book, you can sign up there and you'll get a notification that the book is out on Amazon and that you can purchase it. Great. All right. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Alex Beneshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the vote. Neil Polzin is now an elected official. Learn more at neilforcovina.com. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all of the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter who Jehovah chose, you are the void and the void is you.